The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On Sunday, September 3rd, 2006, Nina Reiser dropped her kids off with their father Hans so they could spend some time with him over the Labor Day weekend. But when she missed a couple of dinner dates and failed to pick up her children from school on Tuesday, friends alerted police she was missing. Nina had completely vanished. Join me now as we explore the case of a young woman who thought she'd finally found her Prince Charming, a chance for a better life. Instead, you'll hear how unfulfilled dreams, deceit, and a desire to control resulted in a tragedy with a devastating outcome. Hans Reiser was born on December 19, 1963, and grew up in the hills of Oakland, California, with his parents, Ramon Reiser and Beverly Palmer. Although he was considered well-behaved and a smart kid growing up, he dropped out of school when he was 13, feeling bored and stifled by the conventional school system. Hans also struggled socially, often being bullied for not quite fitting in. Despite not having many friends, he did have a best friend, Sean Sturgeon, who he spent countless hours playing Dungeons and Dragons with. Even though Hans had dropped out of school, he still managed to get into UC Berkeley because of his high SAT scores when he applied at age 15. During his years at university, Hans kept himself busy studying and working part-time at software jobs. On the side, he also dabbled in martial arts, designed a role-playing game, and wrote science fiction stories. But just like high school, Hans had trouble fitting into the university scene. He was much younger than many of his classmates, and they thought he was not only eccentric, but obnoxious as well. After 12 years, Hans finally earned his bachelor's degree in design of theoretical models and was happy. To put university behind him. When it was time for Hans to enter the workforce, his disdain for structure and rules made it hard for him to hold down a job for any considerable length of time, and he bounced around to a number of tech companies working part-time. Although he hadn't been very successful holding down a job, behind the scenes, Hans was tapping into his love for systems design creating the revolutionary riser journaling file method for the Linux open-source operating system. He also started the software company Namesys. His success changed the perception of the social outcast overnight to someone considered a genius and minor celebrity in the high-tech world. In 1998, Hans traveled to St. Petersburg, Russia, looking for two things. 
affordable computer programmers for his business, and a beautiful woman he could start a family with. Before heading over to Russia, Hans had looked through a marriage agency website and was particularly drawn to one woman's photograph. It was a photo of Nina Saranova with the profile name 5279 Nina. Nina was a highly intelligent, beautiful woman who never had a problem finding a date. In fact, she had a successful career as an obstetrician and gynecologist. People often told her she could easily be a model. But Nina told her mom, Irina, the reason she'd placed the ad was because she was hoping to find her prince and hoped of meeting an American. She'd visited the United States when she was a teenager and loved the trip so much, it just became a place she hoped to live one day. Hans told the news show, 2020, he was drawn to Nina by her beautiful voice. They chatted on the phone before they met, and Hans was impressed Nina didn't have an accent. She had the best English of anyone he'd talked to in Russia, and he considered that to be a sign she was well-educated and intelligent. On their first date, Hans went all out to impress Nina. He wore a cowboy hat, showcasing his Americanness, and read her a poem he'd written especially for her. He told 2020 they complimented each other because Nina had all the classically female aspects of intelligence to an extraordinary extent, while he was an analytical scientist. Hans felt they balanced each other out by having completely different skill sets. Although a small part of Hans worried Nina was only interested in him because she wanted to become an American citizen, he fell in love with her and wanted to marry her. Despite his concerns, Hans took the leap and brought Nina back to the U.S. with him. In 1999, after discovering Nina was pregnant with their first child, the couple decided to tie the knot. During their non-traditional wedding ceremony at a stone labyrinth in a remote part of Tilden Park, Hans and Nina were married. Hans' lifelong best friend, Sean, served as the maid of honor, dressed in drag, while Hans and Nina each wore silk robes. For the first few years of their life together, Hans and Nina appeared to have a genuine love for each other. While Hans focused on building a software business, Nina concentrated on their growing family as they settled into a comfortable home in the hills of Oakland, an area known for its lush redwood forest, a 10 million year old extinct volcano, and the beautiful panoramic views from Ridgeline Trails. Two years after having their son, they welcomed a baby girl into their family. Now with two small children, Hans and Nina were learning they had wildly different views on how to raise them. Nina wanted the kids to go to school, while Hans wanted them taught at home. Nina also didn't agree on Hans's recreational time with their son, who he played violent video games with. In fact, Nina didn't want the kids playing video games at all. Another cause for debate was Hans' stringent belief in very gender-specific roles. He looked after the business and insisted Nina should stay at home with the kids. He also wanted more of them. Nina, on the other hand, wanted to write the U.S. medical exams and get back to practicing medicine. Hans' long trips out of the country also became a sore spot in their relationship. Quite often, Hans would spend months living and working in Russia, sourcing cheap computer programmers, while Nina stayed in Oakland, 
raising their children all on her own. Unhappy with their differences, Nina started bringing up the topic of divorce. That's when Hans turned to his friend Sean for support. On top of asking him for marriage advice, he also asked his friend to keep Nina company when he was out of the country. During an interview with the TV show 48 Hours, Sean said he gave Hans two books, Dummy's Guide to Better Communication Between Couples and Dummy's Guide to Divorce. He told Hans he was going to need one of them. The choice was his. In May 2004, Nina asked Hans to move out of their home because she didn't feel like they were a family anymore. A few months later, she filed for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences. In court documents, Nina stated their children barely knew their father because he was only home for three months out of the whole year. Hans felt differently. He didn't feel responsible in the slightest for their failed marriage and had come to his own conclusions about why Nina was ending it. She'd become a U.S. citizen within just one month of asking him to leave, and Hans figured she'd just been using him all along. He believed his suspicions were confirmed when he later found out his wife and best friend Sean had become romantically involved while he was in Russia. Feeling deeply betrayed, Hans accused Sean of drugging his wife and seducing her. He also thought perhaps Sean had talked Nina into using her position as chief financial officer for their company Namesis to redirect money and steal from him. While waiting for the divorce to be finalized, Nina was granted sole legal custody of the children, and Hans was only allowed to have them for one weekend night and every other weekend. Towards the end of 2004, Nina and Hans were having frequent arguments about money and custody. In December of that year, Nina obtained a one-year civil restraining order against Hans after he pushed her during a heated argument. By 2005, Nina had stopped dating Sean, but they remained close friends. He also provided her with much-needed financial support. Although Hans' business was doing well, he failed to pay 50% of his children's medical and childcare expenses and owed Nina over $10,000. In the summer of 2005, after posting an online ad seeking playdates for her two children, Nina met Anthony Zagrafos. He was a handsome and successful businessman who also had two children from a previous marriage. Anthony thought, Nina was a brilliant and beautiful woman and enjoyed spending time together with her kids. Unlike Hans, Anthony fully supported Nina's dreams of becoming an OBGYN in the U.S. And throughout the summer of 2006, Nina studied for her medical exams and was scheduled to take them in the fall. In many ways, Nina's life was back on track, but her relationship with Hans had become so tense they sometimes exchanged their children at police headquarters. At one point, a police officer who witnessed the exchange warned Nina she'd better get herself a gun. He'd seen hatred in Hans' eyes and thought Nina was at risk, but Nina ignored the warning. Her and Hans may have had their differences, but she believed he loved his children and would never harm their mother. On Labor Day weekend 2006, Nina spent Friday and Saturday with the kids and was scheduled to drop them off at Hans' place on Sunday. 
Before dropping them off the following afternoon, Nina and the kids made a trip for groceries, and she gave a quick call to Hans, informing him they were running late. At approximately 2.30 p.m., Nina and the kids arrived at Hans's mother's place, where he'd been staying since their separation. Because his mom was out of town for the weekend, meant some rare alone time between Hans and his children before dropping them off at school Tuesday morning. On Sunday night, Nina was expected for dinner at her best friend's house at 6.30 p.m., but she didn't show up. Even when Nina was only five minutes late, her friend Ellen Doran became worried because Nina was never late, not without contacting her to let her know. When Nina didn't show up, Ellen began calling her cell phone every half an hour throughout the night, but she never answered. By Monday morning, she was panicking and got in touch with Nina's boyfriend, Anthony. He said he hadn't seen Nina because he'd been camping with his ex and their kids, but said he had plans to meet her for dinner. But Nina never showed up for dinner with Anthony, either. It just wasn't like her in the slightest. She'd always been reliable, and it was so unlike her to not be in touch. Hoping she was just back at her home, Ellen and Anthony went to Nina's house to see if she was there. There was no sign of her. Next, they contacted Hans to see if he'd seen her. He told them the last time he'd talked or seen Nina was when she dropped the kids off around 2.30 on Sunday afternoon. When Nina didn't pick up her kids from school on Tuesday afternoon, Ellen felt it was definitely time to call the police and report her missing. At first, authorities thought perhaps Nina had taken off because she needed some time to herself, given everything she'd been dealing with. But after checking her cell phone records and financial statements, they realized that wasn't the case. She hadn't used her cell phone or accessed her bank account or credit cards since she dropped the kids off on Sunday afternoon. On September 9th, a week after Nina was last seen, her Honda minivan was found parked on Fernwood Road near Highway 13 in the Oakland Hills. Inside the van, investigators found over $100 worth of rotting groceries. Nina's purse was also found in the vehicle, and inside it, they found a rent check, her driver's license, credit cards, and notes reminding her of upcoming appointments. Her cell phone was also in the van, and disturbingly, its battery had been detached, so it couldn't be pinged or traced. This all strongly suggested foul play, and police ramped up their investigation into who may have wanted to hurt Nina. At first, they had three people of interest. When investigators checked Nina's voicemail, they discovered several messages left by her boyfriend Anthony the weekend she disappeared. Some of the messages sounded like the couple had been arguing, with Anthony saying things like, everything can be fixed. Suspicions grew when a couple of Nina's friends said Anthony could be controlling, but investigators checked out Anthony's alibi and he was definitely camping with his ex and children when Nina vanished. There was no way he could have been involved. Authorities also checked out Hans's former best friend, Sean, who had had an affair with Nina. He was still supporting her financially, 
and they thought maybe he had grown jealous of Anthony and had demanded his money back, perhaps causing a fight. But as it turned out, Sean too had a rock-solid alibi. He was working in a soup kitchen during the time Nina disappeared. The third suspect was unsurprisingly Hans, who refused to talk to the police without his lawyer present and was blatantly uncooperative. In fact, when investigators tried to interview Hans, he would go to great lengths to avoid them. Once, he even jumped out of his car and ran several blocks up the street. When police questioned Hans' neighbors, they learned of something interesting. They told detectives that the afternoon Nina went missing, they'd seen Hans spraying water off something in the driveway for at least half an hour. That aroused suspicions enough for them to proceed with getting a search warrant for Hans's car. During the initial inspection, they couldn't help but notice right away that the passenger seat was missing. In questioning Hans about it, he simply explained to the police he'd removed it so it was easier for him to sleep in the car. But that made little sense, as he was living with his mom at the time. Inside the car, authorities also found two books on homicide investigation, Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, and Masterpieces of Murder. Records indicated Hans had purchased them just five days after Nina had disappeared. Was Hans educating himself to stay one step ahead of the police? As detectives continued to search for leads on where Nina might be, cadaver dogs were brought in, but there was still no sign of her. In the days following Nina's disappearance, Hans fought for custody of the kids and lost. After Oakland police testified making it clear, Hans was the number one suspect in a murder investigation. Within a week, Nina's mom flew from Russia to take over looking after the grandkids. By that point, the children were missing their mother immensely and couldn't understand where she'd gone. Nina's mom took immediate action and did what she thought was best, which was to take the kids back to Russia with her. Not only did she want to get them away from their dad, she wanted to protect them from the media spotlight. While Nina continued to remain missing, Anthony distributed thousands of missing person flyers and also had 18 billboards put up throughout the Oakland area, which displayed Nina's photo and contact information. He even rallied volunteers and organized an extensive search of the surrounding area of Hans's mother's house, as well as where Nina's van had been found. Hans, on the other hand, made no attempt to search for the mother of their children. As police continued to investigate Hans, they tapped his phone, revealing an interesting conversation between him and his mother. During the call, Hans opened up by telling her she needed to know the real reason his marriage with Nina hadn't worked out. According to Hans, Nina was crazy, hated him, and took it out on their son. Hi, Mom. Yeah? I never really spoke to you much about the divorce. And, you know, I had wanted to go to a mediator. I tried to talk Nina into a mediator. You know, I guess Nina decided that wouldn't be enough fun. So she did this traumatic stress disorder due to violent computer games. She really was nuts, Mom. She really was. She really was what? She really was nuts. She hated me, and Rory was the proxy for me. So by 
discovering that he was borderline autistic. That was her way of degrading me. You know, I was really surprised when, you know, the kids asked me about custody and I explained about how, you know, custody gets divided out. And Rory said that he wanted to live with me. And not live with me, you know, 50% of the time, but live only with me. And I think that's because he understands that she doesn't mean well by him. And he understands that a mother who wants him to be sick and who wants him to have things that are wrong with him doesn't really like him on some deep, conflicted level. After going on to accuse Nina of stealing money from the business, Hans said he was the victim of physical abuse. Hans told his mom Nina had kicked him on several occasions and he'd made the mistake of not charging her. In his mind, his decency was a mistake, and now he was paying dearly for it. Investigators found Hans's lack of empathy chilling. When Beverly tried to get her son to agree, Nina didn't deserve whatever had happened to her. She didn't just abuse me. She looked for every possible way she could screw me, and didn't. And the fact that I had been a good and generous husband just seemed like weakness to her. That's all she could understand it as. You know, but Hans, as awful as these things are, it's still sad, whatever it is that's happened to Nina. Well, yeah. I mean, no matter all these, no matter all these things that she did, she didn't deserve whatever it is that's happened to her. Don't you think? I think my children shouldn't be endangered by her. Well, I still think it's... The whole thing is that. What? Because all I had ever wanted was to be nice to her and give her an opportunity to come to the United States. And, you know, in return for giving her that opportunity, you know, have some children. And... But still, Nina didn't deserve whatever it is that's happened to her. Yeah. And neither did I and neither did Rory. After the conversation between Hans and his mom, Police were convinced they had their man, which was confirmed after the forensic tests came back. A DNA test of some blood found on a wooden post in the entryway of Hans's mother's house came back to belonging to both Hans and Nina. Nina's blood was also found on a light switch going down to the basement and a bag in Hans's car. Another interesting discovery was two relatively new shovels and a pick found in the basement. Investigators theorized Hans had murdered Nina and then buried her somewhere, but where? In October 2006, six weeks after Nina vanished, police arrested Hans for her murder. When Hans was taken into custody, it appeared as though he was preparing to flee. With $9,000 in cash on hand, including his passport, Hans had also taken the battery out of his cell phone, eerily similar to how Nina's phone had been found. During his arrest, police took unclothed photos of Hans in case there was any evidence he'd been in a struggle. At one point during the photo session, Hans flatulated in the face of one of the officers and warned, you're about to experience chaos. Just when the investigators thought the case couldn't get any stranger, they interviewed Hans's old friend, Sean, in preparation for the trial. During his interview, Sean shockingly confessed to killing eight and a half people. 
He said he wasn't sure if the ninth person had died. Investigators were completely at a loss for words. Had they been trying to pin Nina's murder on the wrong guy? Maybe Hans wasn't involved. Sean said he'd killed his victims because they had abused and molested him and his sister in a commune growing up. But he refused to provide any further details about his victims, not even their names. The prosecution panicked. The defense would certainly paint Sean as a jilted lover who had killed Nina after she left him for Anthony. That's when prosecution offered Hans a deal. A voluntary manslaughter charge and only three years behind bars. But Hans turned the plea deal down. With Sean now the obvious suspect, Hans was sure he'd win. But oh no, he was wrong. At a pretrial ruling, Sean's strange confession was surprisingly ruled inadmissible, and Hans lost his perfect alternative suspect. Later, Sean admitted he made up the whole bizarre confession to avoid testifying at Hans' trial. It just didn't make sense. Sean said he did everything he could to make himself an undesirable witness because he didn't want any more information about his lifestyle out in the public. So on November 6, 2007, Hans Reiser's trial began. Paul Hora, the Alameda County District Attorney, presented a mountain of forensic evidence investigators had gathered and simply argued Nina was deceased and Hans had murdered her. Nina's friends and family testified, one after the other, what a loving and devoted mother Nina had been and that there was no way she'd ever leave her children. Nina and Hans's son, who was eight years old at the time, flew in from Russia with his grandmother to testify. He told jurors he was mad at his dad because he thought he was responsible for his mom's disappearance. Who else could do something to Nina except Hans, he said. Letters he had written his dad from Russia over the past year were also read in court. In one dated shortly after his birthday, he wrote, the only present he wanted was his mom back. In the same letter, he asked his father ten times, Where is Nina? He showed the court a picture he'd drawn of what he remembered seeing on the night his mom disappeared. The drawing showed a male stick figure with the name Hans written by it, carrying a large ball-like object. He said the stick figure was his dad, who was carrying a big bag down the basement stairs. He now believed it had been his mom inside the bag. When the defense was up, Hans's lawyer, William Dubois, made every attempt to smear Nina's character. He questioned her involvement with her husband's best friend, Sean, and accused her of being a gold digger who only married Hans so she could become a U.S. citizen. Hans's lawyer argued Nina couldn't have married Hans out of love, calling him one of the least attractive people you can imagine. The defense also tried to convince the court Nina was still alive and well, hiding out in Russia. It was his theory that after Nina had stolen enough money from her husband's business, she fled and abandoned her children. That's when Hans's father Ramon took the stand, offering up an even more outlandish theory. It was his suspicion that Nina might have been killed by Russian spies or mobsters because her father had worked at a spa frequented by lowlifes. Throughout the trial, 
Hans was his own biggest enemy, with his behavior almost downright bizarre. The judge even had to tell him that if he didn't stop interrupting his lawyer when he was questioning witnesses, he'd be kicked out of his own trial. Hans's abrasive personality didn't help either, but his lawyer tried to explain it away by mounting a geek defense. He suggested Hans was your stereotypical computer programmer who only understood logic and was completely socially inept, but that didn't mean he was a murderer. On April 28, 2008, after a six-month trial, the jury found Hans guilty of first-degree murder. But the case was surprisingly far from over. Four months later, Nina's family approved an unusual deal. Hans could plead guilty to the lesser charge of second-degree murder if he revealed what happened to Nina and led investigators to her body. As a part of the deal, he would serve 15 years to life instead of 25 years to life, but would give up any chance of appealing his sentence. In July 2008, Hans led investigators to Redwood Regional Park. There, in the dense forest, about half a mile from Hans's mom's home, police found Nina's skeletal remains. She'd been stuffed into a duffel bag, just like her son had remembered, and then buried in a shallow grave. It was horrifying to realize a child had witnessed his father discarding his mother's body. Almost exactly two years after Nina mysteriously vanished, Hans finally confessed to murdering her. He said he snapped when Nina casually told him she intended to keep taking the children to doctor's appointments against his expressed wishes. She had full custody and she said the decision was hers to make. In a fit of rage, Hans said he punched Nina in the mouth and then choked her to death. He said he used an unsophisticated chokehold that would embarrass any judo instructor, but stressed it was the least painful way to die. When Nina was no longer breathing, he placed her body in a duffel bag and hid her in his car. Over the course of two nights, when the children were sleeping, he said he went into the hills and dug Nina's grave. On his last trip, he buried her. He added, he hoped a cherry tree would be planted to mark the gravesite. At his sentencing trial, Hans apologized to Nina's loved ones for what he'd done, and he said he'd try to be a better man. And I'm very sorry for the terrible harm that I've caused my children. If I'm able to, I'll try to contribute to society while in prison. Nina's friends and family were relieved. It was finally over. Hans was going to prison, and they could finally give Nina a proper burial. Four years after being convicted of murder, Hans returned to court in July of 2012 to defend himself against a wrongful death suit brought by his children. The children's attorney, Arturo Gonzalez, said the children sought unspecified damages for the wrongful death of their mother and the infliction of emotional distress. At the civil trial, Hans acted as his own lawyer and told an entirely new story. In this version, 
He claimed he had murdered his wife to save his children. He told the court Nina had abused the kids because she had Munchausen syndrome by proxy, a disorder in which a caregiver hurts or even kills someone in their care to gain sympathy and attention. Han said by killing Nina, he had defended his children from harm and stopped her from committing multiple felonies. Although the children didn't testify at the trial, other people who knew the family argued Hans was lying. Nina had been a wonderful mother who took excellent care of her children. She would never have harmed them. By the end of the week-long trial, Hans was talking in circles and even admitted his wife never directly harmed their children. He also conceded he wouldn't have revealed where he'd buried Nina if he had been convicted of first-degree murder and needed a deal. He would have let his children always wonder what had happened to their mother. Hans's enormous ego was also on display several times during the trial when he compared himself to Moses, Galileo, Leonardo da Vinci, and Benjamin Franklin. In the end, the jury didn't buy Hans's story and awarded the children $60 million. Although Hans claimed he didn't have any money left, the jury said if he ever got out of prison, they were happy to know their verdict would ensure any future income he earned would help his children. Hans goes to the parole board in 2021, but isn't expected to be released. He'll likely spend the rest of his life in prison. After Nina's death, the children were raised by their grandmother Irina in St. Petersburg, Russia, their mother's hometown. It was understandably difficult for them to face their tragic loss. After years of therapy and loving support from their family, they've started moving forward. Nina's family found some comfort in bringing her home, laying her to rest close by instead of an unmarked grave in the Oakland Hills. Nothing can ever replace the loss of a child's mother. Instead of being comforted by their mom's warm embrace, they visit her gravesite. It's a devastating reality that no child should ever have to experience. Perhaps the one small comfort is knowing Nina's caring nature and beautiful spirit will continue to live on in her children. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. I'd like to thank the following Patreon supporters. Joe, Lee B., Donnie Y., Tracy B., Janine M., Jessica C., Tatum H., Heather, and Amber L. I'd also like to thank Peter and Tracy from Podhive for helping us put this episode together. Whether you're thinking about starting a new podcast or you're a seasoned podcaster that needs some help, Podhive offers all the services you'll possibly need. You can check them out at podhive.com.
The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at madnesspod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E.